0: Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton.
2: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulton. Today we'll be talking about a documentary that sheds some positive light on genetic engineering, or at least discusses this in a very honest way. With its strengths and limitations, and uh, our guest today coming from Red Deer, Canada, (laughs) right? Is that right, Nick? Yes,
3: that's correct. Red Deer, Alberta, Canada.
2: (laughs) Red Deer, Alberta. Um, Nick Syke, and Nick is a writer and director, or writer and uh, writer and director of No GMO, K N O W GMO, the movie. And um, welcome to the podcast, Nick.
3: Thanks for having me, Kevin. Appreciate it.
2: Yeah, this is really cool. So just for what it's worth, Nick and I um, uh, met originally maybe maybe almost two summers ago now. When yeah, you it's were, been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. You were actually, when you were shooting the footage for the documentary,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and you came down here to Florida, and we spent a day in a couple of different contexts. But before we go into that, you know, get down into the weeds there, the thing that's exciting about what you're doing to me is... Is that the artistry and the artistic efforts, whether it's websites, documentaries, um, you know, really cool, like evil artwork, um, you know, uh, it, it's very asymmetrical. And science hasn't had a place at the table. It's been a lot of activists kind of maligning scientific efforts. And so your effort here kind of wants to shed a, a, um, at least an honest light. On what's happening with agriculture and genetic engineering? So, could you tell us about your motivations? Like, why did you decide to take on this rather daunting task?
3: Absolutely. Uh, well, you're right; it is definitely a daunting task, and uh, nobody knows it better than me at this point. We're two years, uh, two years and a bit, I guess, into this production, and uh, I guess the reason why, I guess the reason why I started doing this is, I mean, a little bit of background on me: I grew up. Kind of with one foot or a toe, I guess, in agriculture. My dad, Rob Syke, who's also the executive producer of this uh, movie, uh, he's he's uh, he spent his life kind of working in the ag industry and facilitating uh, kind of increased yields and better productivity with farmers as a as a consultant. And so I I've had exposure to agriculture my whole life, and as a filmmaker too, I started uh, I started filming agriculture at. You 13, 14 for my my dad's company, and then it kind of branched out from there. So not only is it kind of the genesis of my filmmaking career, but it's just something that I've always really admired and sort of respected and enjoyed capturing the aesthetic quality of. And then a little bit later on in my life, uh, I moved to Vancouver, Canada, which is on the West Coast, just above Seattle there. And I was there for three years. And I'm a fairly liberal guy. I'm kind of my my in my late 20s, and uh, I was exposed to a whole different food philosophy and a whole different way of thinking about food there, and it left me in this gap of like, okay, which way of thinking about food is right here? I've got these very pro-organic, you know, hippy dippy sort of people on the coast that I I really you know kind of hang out with and subscribe to a lot of the things they think. And then also at home, I have this other view of food and you know my friends on the west coast really couldn't wrap their heads around how farmers were trying to facilitate and steward you know their their land and be good about it and so there's this big gap and to me that was one of the big reasons why i wanted to do this project was to try to find some common ground and build a bridge
2: and is it is it really um, a common ground issue do you think or is it really just kind of, a, or is there really not a common ground? And there's two different grounds, but one of them's right and one of them's wrong. What do you think?
3: I, I don't see. I, I I don't know if I would frame it as one is right and one is wrong. I think that I think that the pro-organic side of things tends to have some misinformation attached to it, but I think there's a lot of valid reasoning behind. The organic movement. I think people are responding to real feelings that they have about food. And I mean, I think the media is is, uh, partially and and in a large way to blame for people having a fear about food and modern agriculture. But, well, there's a little bit more playing into it, too. I mean, you know the numbers. I think, what, two percent of North Americans maybe farm. That's right. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other 98% of us don't have a very good understanding of what goes into growing food. And I think that that leaves us in a really vulnerable place to misinformation. And our brains are kind of geared to respond to fear, right? We talked about this a little bit in our our interview, Kevin, when we were talking in the documentary is our brains are kind of hardwired to respond to fear. And if that's how people are messaging to you, you're going to click on that thing, right? You're going to reinforce that position in your head. And so I I think there is common ground to be had here. I think there are valid instances where organic farming is sustainable. I think there are instances where GMO could add to the sustainability of conventional or organic production, right? So, you know, there's... uh, The film's logo, the film's sort of symbol is a Venn diagram, right? And what that to me means is that You can have these different points of view and these different positions, but is there some commonality in it, right? Can we find something to agree about and start from there and have a conversation from that place first rather than starting from where we differ? Yeah, I always thought that Ven, I don't
2: know who it was, but he probably, his wife probably wasn't happy because they probably didn't agree on much. (laughs) Like this little slipper in the middle. (laughs) Right. uh, That's
3: a valid uh, observation, Kevin.
2: uh, I think the other, uh, so going back to this idea, I agree with you. I think that this idea of, I think it's a false dichotomy to say there's a, a side that's genetic engineering or conventional and then another side that's organic. I think it's total garbage. I think that you do what works for your production system that you remember that sustainability is about certainly about the planet but also about an economic sustainability and how can farmers that that 2% how do they make money and keep their operations afloat and in in my state and people in my department serve a very uh, vibrant organic industry here in the state and if go. if farmers can retool Um, Or put aside a certain amount of ground uh, area to be certified if they can meet those standards And they can make a few bucks and keep the lights on more power to them And
3: yeah, yeah, I agree completely like one of the things that my dad taught me very early on in my uh, in my egg Education is that farmers have basically three jobs, right? You have to grow the crop You have to sell the crop and you have to manage the money, right? And those three things all interplay and that's why you know you can't fault a farmer for farming organically I mean there there are there are financial reasons for doing so there's marketing reasons for doing so uh, and you bet there are there are certain instances where you can maybe gain some efficiency right so I again, and that's it how could there be a false dichotomy when <laughs> when organic is a practice and GMO is a thing right and that's something that I'm trying to help people understand is that you, they are not opposites. They're not mutually exclusive because they're, they're not even the same thing. You know? Exactly.
2: And the other thing that, that maybe we should touch on there is you mentioned the economic drivers for why people would choose to farm organically. But, you know, there's also a lot of folks, and its original intention was, how do we farm with less impact? And how do we um, respect the environment and how do we maybe try to reuse something that can be uh, retooled and put back into the earth, build soil, all that good stuff?
3: Well, right. And I mean, my understanding of it too, is that it's like organic, organic practices kind of. I think they sort of came to fruition like post-World War One and Two when, uh, when we started realizing that you could use ammonia and ammonia-like chemicals for nitrogen fertilization. And then that sort of opened the door to a counterpoint, right? Like if we're going to go the direction of chemicals and sort of synthetic fertilizers, then uh, there will be a market for the opposite thing. It makes logical sense.
2: Yeah, I think it was... Well, Haber-Bosch certainly accelerated this, but there was a lot of this that was born out of uh, some what now look like rather strange concepts in biodynamic farming and other issues like that. But the idea of uh, of sustainable, and, and keep in mind, most people on the planet don't have access to Haber-Bosch. So for nitrogen fixation or nitrogen uh, urea production or ammonia production. And so you uh, are required to make the most out of what you have right and use um and use different types of naturally occurring or um or easily acquired uh, non synthetic uh crop protection and I think this is an in fertilization and what's really cool about that is when you start talking about ideas of intercropping of cover crops of rotations, you're really just borrowing from what conventional agriculture used to be. And kind of goes back to and you hear more and more about different conventional farmers saying, um, well we're go- going to be using cover crops this year and
3: yeah yeah well, and that was that's something like that's something that's worth noting right is that if we if we are currently in a uh, in an environment where we have what appears to be two distinctly different styles of farming, you, you should be able to trace those back to a common node, right? Like where we were just farming one way. And I think you nailed it, right? It's like if you go back far enough to where we hadn't invented these uh, sort of, I guess, quote unquote, man-made methods of of fertilization, I guess all farming was both conventional and organic at a certain point in time, correct? Yeah, well, I mean,
2: I, I guess that's what it would be, right? And I think it's just been that there's just been a strange thing that's happened here. That just like Cubs, Sox, Chevy, Ford, people started to you know take teams and sides on this issue that I think are kind of bogus. I think that the idea is is that we should all be striving for sustainability, and it's going to be different. You know, and that word is a weird word to me. It means how do we how do we farm, make money for farmers, which I think is really important. But be able to do so with environmental sensitivity, and be able to create a quality product that is uh, good for consumers. And well, yeah, and, consumers and want.
3: I, sorry, go ahead, Kevin. No,
2: no, that's uh, that's that. I just uh, put a bow on it there. So, but the idea is, is that's my my thinking is that you bring, and it's not going to be the same whether you're in uh, southern Florida or the Midwest or California coast or Hawaii. It's yeah. different everywhere you go.
3: Well, and you brought up a really interesting thing here as well, right? So, like, one of the interesting things that I, I kind of tried to answer in the film and one of the things I really wanted to find was, like, okay, when is the first instance where somebody put GMO and organic in an adversarial context, right? Because that, that to me was, like, okay, if I'm going to make a movie about this, I should probably find the first time it happened, Right. So I was uh, I was in California and I got to speak with uh, Dr. Roger Beachy. Are you familiar with Dr. Roger Beachy? Oh, sure. Yeah, I know Roger. Okay, so I spoke with Roger and he brought up uh, a moment in 1995 when he was uh, brought onto an NBC program uh, and uh, he was kind of put, uh, sort of put against a person advocating against the um, flavor saver tomato. Right, And so I, I have this clip. It's a fantastic clip. It's, it's really the first time the media ever kind of made GMO and organic adversaries in a television context, right? And it's such a fascinating clip. It's, it's really interesting to watch uh, Roger's reactions to things and watch his opponents' reactions to things. But, you know, if, if, if what we're talking about here, Kevin, is like how does science sort of bridge the gap into artistry Another question is, how do you do it without oversimplifying things, right? And and I think the media is guilty of this all of the time, right? It's like, I know it because I have to social media, you know, kind of have a presence for this film, and it's so easy to boil things down to clickbait, right? And I mean, you see that in the anti-GMO side of things all the time, right? It's clickbait. Mm-hmm. You won't believe what they found in your food, or you won't believe how many, uh, you know, foods contain traces of glyphosate or whatever the current issue is that they bring up. It's just, it's always boiled down. It's always oversimplified. And I I think that's, there's a gap there. Like, how do I do my job, Kevin? How do I tell people about the intricacies of genetic modification without being guilty of oversimplifying it like the rest of the media does?
2: Well, yeah, and then that leads us as scientists who are tasked with not how do we over how do we not oversimplify? How do we not overcomplexify? And we I and mean, <laughs> yeah. we have a, we have exactly the opposite problem. And we sit here uh, and I sit here on this podcast and at week in and week out, I interview scientists, and I get some who get so deep in the weeds in in terms of what they do, which is wonderful <laughs> because it's their passion, it's their life's work. But if you're going to talk to the public. You have to, at some point, be able to put that aside, break it down into analogies. And that's where maybe my role comes in on this, that I get to be that intermediate and kind of say, okay, let me get this straight and distill it down for the listener. So we're at a certain disadvantage because there's not a lot of people who are breaking that the stuff down, but there's also not a lot of scientists who are taking the advantage of stepping into the public to
3: begin with. Yeah, no, I I would agree with that. It's a uh, it's a very tricky balance, and uh, I mean, it's uh, it's been one of my uh, one of the most rewarding things that I've been able to do through the course of working on this production is uh, is speak to a wide assortment of scientists and farmers and regulators and executives and I mean, it ran the gambit and it was so fascinating to hear people's different ways of explaining things i have sort of a collection of metaphors right like when i when it comes time in the film to try to explain to people like okay what is genetic modification actually mean uh like how do you approach that for people right how do you do it in a scientifically valid and literate way but also make it you know digestible and fun for people to uh to listen to, right? I mean, that's why I, I aspire to people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and, uh, you know, Bill Nye. I'm so happy that Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of is continually getting more and more of a following. It gives me a little bit of faith in humanity, at least, you know. No, I, uh, I agree. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 we're all, you know, we're all kind of pitching for the same team, I feel like, there. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, just an, it's just an interesting thing to be a part of.
2: Well, let's do this. So we spent the first half of of this particular episode talking about your philosophy and our thinking and, and where this genesis of this idea came from. What I'd like to do in the next half of the podcast is talk more about the specifics and maybe some of the places you've been, the cool stories you learned along the way. Okay? Yep. All right, so we'll be right back with the next part of the Talking Biotech podcast. We're talking to Nick Syke, and Nick is joining us from Red Deer, Canada. Nick is the writer and director of No GMO, K-N-O-W, GMO the movie. We'll be right back.
1: Greetings, Talking Biotech aficionados, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Thanks to you. You've written great, wonderful reviews on iTunes, and it's quite a beacon to the podcast surfer. Shows your amazing support for this mofo of a science show. And special thanks to you who dared to accept my challenge and got that talking biotech tattoo. It's appreciated, but guess what? That tattoo lasts a really long time. It's my hope that someday, a few decades from now, we can look at your dermal commitment to a science podcast and ridicule you for defacing your flesh. Our hope is that your days in assisted living will use that tat as a conversation starter, reminding the elderly of the dark ages when science was shunned for flashy marketing and myth that placed fear over reason. However, with the support of so many listeners, we're moving innovation to application and helping people and planet along the way. So, tell a friend, write a review on iTunes, and most of all, share the beautiful science that we learn from the expert guests that kindly share their expertise here
2: on the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we go back to talk about an upcoming documentary that really frames, in an honest context, the topic of genetic engineering of crops. And joining me is the writer and director of No GMO, K-N-O-W, GMO. Uh, you have to spell that because homophones are the, <laughs> it's, demo, it's, the it's devil's it's the place of misunderstanding. It's the
3: title for a film ever devised, but it works, right? It works because I, I can convince somebody who's like, Super anti-GMO. If I say I made a film called No GMO, you should go watch it. They're going to think, and no, and they're going to go watch it, and then I tricked them. All right, so well, that's that was, good. It's <laughs> that one that way to p- my, my <laughs> thinking with the title. So. It's
2: one way to put butts in the seats, right? <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, so let's go back to talking about um, uh, the documentary itself, and um, maybe before we get into the documentary per se, um, let's. Do a quick plug for some of the work you're doing currently. You've been, and um, you were talking to me a few weeks ago. And I guess how many hours did you actually shoot in total oh, for this?
3: I think we, I think we broached a hundred hours. Uh, so we, we got like, I think like seventy plus interviews, roughly, and uh, over a hundred hours of footage, which is a crazy amount for a ninety-minute film.
2: Yeah. So, so ninety-minute film, you got a hundred hours of footage, and I, I could honestly say that when you came down by us. I would say, you know, we spent two full days recording, and we went to so many cool places and saw so many compelling things. I think you could spend 90 minutes just on what happened in Florida. And well,
3: yeah, and I, I mean, you really could easily. And so so
2: what are you doing to kind of maximize your efforts here, rather than just a 90-minute documentary? Um, tell us about the shorter efforts that you're now uh, putting out online.
3: Sure. Uh, So from No GMO, the film, uh, while that is brewing, we've decided to uh, sort of tackle the same topic in a more social media friendly uh, format. So we've created a web series called Learn GMO, and it's uh, going to be a 10 part, sort of 10 minute a piece web series. And we've basically taken the topics of the film, we've sliced it up into sections, and I've used a lot of the footage that uh likely won't make it into the 90 minute film uh and so what you get here is just a sort of an extra and more rich understanding of the topics that we cover and it's easier to pass around online
2: and so far everything i've seen is really beautiful really well done i i think you know just your um your eyeball kind of shows through in this stuff beautifully and can you give us like what is the what can you give us maybe the where do you find this where can people start to look at some of the learn GMO material?
3: Right, so uh, the best place to go is uh, is visit our website uh, nogmothemovie.com, dot com k n o w g m o the movie dot com. And uh, there you'll find the latest episode of the web series, as well as uh, some additional content. So a couple other ways I've tackled this, too. I've made a few trailers, obviously, for the film, but I've also wanted to make a few little featurettes. And so I've taken just, uh, you know, some uh, prime, prime pickings from uh, my interviews and just created these little one-minute videos. Those are there as well. And, uh, yeah, so just visit the website uh, to see uh, some of our current content.
2: Okay. And and do you have an expectation date for the main feature?
3: Yes. uh, Well, yes and no. Uh, We we want to get it done by this time next year, but this is all predicated on us finding funding. So uh, frankly, if you had talked to me 365 days ago, I would have said we wanted to get it done by this time next year. And here I sit. So... We're, uh, we're working on strategies to find the funding we need to finish the documentary itself, and uh, in the meantime, the lowest cost way I can get some of this material out and start having it actually have an impact is to do this web series, so that's where we're at.
2: Okay, and when you talk about funding, it's not funded by Monsanto, Dow, Bayer, and the big
3: companies, Right you would know how important it is uh, to address this fact outright. Yes, no, we're not uh, we're not funded by Monsanto or Bayer or anybody like that. That was a huge concern of us uh, as we sort of stepped into the film is is being taken seriously uh, and uh, and sort of having less conflicts of interest. So this film has actually been 100% funded so far by uh, donations, charitable donations. So if you navigate to our website, No GMO The Movie, uh, in the menu you'll find a donate button and that will take you directly to our partner's partner Farm and Food Cares website where you can donate to the film. And if you're Canadian, you can receive a charitable donations receipt for doing so. And if you're not Canadian, we still love you and appreciate you nonetheless. So that's the place where you can help contribute to the financial success of the film.
2: Okay, that sounds really great. And then um, maybe we'll touch again on that at the end. Sure. So let's talk about your uh, the aspects of the film that you found most compelling. What were some of the places that you visited, and some of the feelings that you really learned that you didn't anticipate going in?
3: Well... I mean, we got got to travel through a a large part of the United States, I guess as it pertains to biotechnology. So we visited California, Florida, Missouri, Hawaii, and uh, all of those places were fantastic and enlightening in their own way. But by far, to me, the place that had the most personal impact, and I think the place that put this whole conversation into uh, a really good context was uh, when we visited Kenya and Uganda. So we spent some time over there filming and... uh, yeah, that was quite an experience uh, and quite an eye-opener.
2: And what was what was maybe the most humbling take-home message from that experience?
3: Well, to, I guess to frame it in terms of the GMO organic debate, uh, when you talk about GMOs and you sort of defend them from the position of like, look, these could be a really valuable thing for the third world, I, I think the first sort of anti-reaction is to you know, kind of correlate that to Monsanto somehow and say, oh, you know, GMOs in the developing world means, uh, you know, Monsanto in the developing world and it's just another way of corporations from the United States getting their foot in the door and messing things up over there and that just, it all falls apart when you actually get over there and you see A, the issues that farmers are dealing with on the ground there and B, when you see the ways in which Ugandans and Kenyans are actually dealing with it. So, from a North American standpoint, like it's it's really easy when you when you talk about the developing world, it's super easy to fall into this. Um, you you can either give a man a fish or teach a man to fish kind of mentality, right? Like either either we're gonna give them food, you know, from shipping containers, or we're gonna teach them with our methodology how we grow food. So that they can do it properly. And when you actually get over there, like the thing that floored me was holy, don't assume that people don't know how to fish when you meet them, right? Like it's not give a man a fish or teach a man to fish, it's don't assume they don't know how to fish and get out of the way and let them fish. So, what I mean is, I was astounded by the amount of money that Ugandan and Kenyan taxpayers are putting into their own biotechnology research right they're not looking for uh, for Monsanto excuse me to provide uh, you know provide the next miracle copy they want to do it themselves and mm-hmm. I was floored by that I was absolutely floored by that
2: yeah that's one of the things I always caution people communicating in this space is to avoid that feed the world rhetoric because the when we say feed the world we're implying that the world can't feed itself and I think the people in the developing world really do feel a strong desire to want to take care of themselves. They want to be self-sufficient. They want to be self-sustaining and they're going to do it and they don't need our help. You know, and, and I think that it's really important for us to bear that sensitivity in mind. It's awesome for us to offer them the technology and access to the technology and innovation. But, um, you know, let's, let's never assume that they don't know how to farm.
3: Well, exactly. And I mean, especially when you start thinking about it in terms of like, okay, sort of locally speaking, I guess every area has its own issues. And, you know, uh, we have great things like Roundup Ready canola and BT cotton here in uh, in North America and I guess in India as well with BT cotton. But in, in places like Kenya and Uganda, right, beyond the benefits that things like, you know, Roundup Ready crops or BT crops could give them – uh, I mean, they're struggling with, like, some serious, just, like, fundamental disease problems there. Like, I, w- I was given the chance to sort of tour through a cassava field and see what um, uh, ca- uh, mosaic brown streak virus sure. kind of does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember being on the cassava farm, and uh, it's a female female farmer named Susan, and she had, like, six or seven kids who were there on the farm as well. And you see this field of just like absolutely annihilated cassava and it's like there are the mouths that need to feed it. It's not some abstract industrial process, you know, where the corn will get made into cornflakes. Like these are the mouths. That's the crop that's not growing. Do the math. Right? Like it's it's so like so black and white there. So high contrast, right?
2: Yeah. And and the sad part is is that the uh cassava virus problems between brown streak and cassava mosaic virus those are both sol- uh, both problems that have genetic engineering solutions that parallel those that have been used in papaya and squash yeah. and where they've been planted they've been amazingly effective and uh, it is really important especially because well the viruses are white fly vectored there's other issues there but um this could be a technology that could be part of a solution And uh, by illuminating this in a place like Uganda, I, I can't wait to see the film because I think those are very powerful thoughts and very powerful moments.
3: Yeah, and I mean, you know, you spoke of the of the sort of uh, the transgenic, um, I guess, I, when I was in Kenya after Uganda, so after visiting this cassava field in Uganda, we visited Kenya, and I got to visit a research plot where they're sitting there, are transgenic cassavas that are resistant to bacterial wilts, and uh, I mean, <laughs> it was really hard not to get a little bit angry and a little bit nihilistic after that, right? Like, it, it's you can never you can never understand fully the impact that you know advocating against gmos could have for people in the developing world right and one of the points that the film makes over and over again is that the more we protest gmos the more difficult the regulatory environment becomes for academics and for uh, for smaller corporations to access, right? It's really hard and really expensive right now to push a uh, genetically modified trait through to market. Correct? Oh, sure. It's expensive, and uh, and it's expensive because, <laughs> in large part, because the public has uh, has uh, sort of. I guess, uh, really advocated against those things, right? And, and sort of bolstered this regulatory environment that makes it prohibitively expensive and, uh, and difficult for these traits to see their way to, uh, to helping people. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating, right? You see these things out there. I mean, when I was touring through uh, different universities in the United States as well, right, I saw all kinds of GMO varieties just sitting on the shelf right and it's so likely that a lot of those things will never see the light of day just because it's too expensive to get them there so what are we doing like you know these are those are the moments where i, I kind of shift from being a rational optimist to being like oh wow we could be doing so much better uh <laughs> in in a variety of ways
2: yeah it makes yeah. you want to book a ticket back to vancouver and dish out some wedgies you know it,
3: uh, is, but, <laughs> that's, but that's so exactly <laughs> it yeah
2: but um is that what you call them in canada too
3: Oh wedgies, yeah, no, that's exactly what we call them. Yeah, see, yeah. where I
2: grew up, they for whatever reason, the county I grew up in, they called them Grundies. <laughs> so you'd <laughs> that's get a, a Grundy. The
3: worst name. Yeah, yeah,
2: I know. Well, then I go to college and give people Grundys, and they go, "It's a wedgie, it's not a Grundy." Yeah.
3: That's well, a colloquialism.
2: Yeah, well, you know, um, <laughs> we, maybe we can bring back the Grundy. <laughs> the Grundy.
3: Uh, but <laughs> I guess hashtag Bring Back the Grundy. <laughs>
2: Well, let's um, kind of head towards the home stretch here. I think the thing yep. that is really the beautiful thing about the fact that you're doing this, and why I'm so excited about it, is because you do eliminate uh, you do illuminate many of the problems that exist and their potential solutions. I know in Florida you saw lots of dead citrus, yeah. and what I think this kind of documentary can do very powerfully is benchmark where we were because i think this is going to be the kind of thing that in 10 years in 20 years in 50 years that we'll be able to look back at this time and say it is unbelievable that people actively fought this technology
3: i hope so i mean i i hope that that is what it, it ends up being a benchmark for i um I mean, without without getting off topic, you know, I see the same I see the same issues, Kevin, in a lot of different areas. I mean, uh, <laughs> again, without getting off topic, from speaking up from Canada down to there, you know, the same issues that Democrats and Republicans have talking to each other is the same issue that liberals and conservatives have in Canada talking to each other is the same issue that people who support homeopathy have talking to people who love Western medicine is the same issue people have with people who support fossil fuels versus people who support alternative energies. There's there's just all of the framing of this stuff has never given any credence to there being somewhere where we can talk to each other and somewhere where we can agree on stuff. And I mean, if, if that's going to be my life's work is telling these stories and trying to build bridges, then I'll be happy doing that.
2: Now, that's very well put. And I, I think I'm kind of a funny outlier, too, because I like to just follow evidence and yeah. I, I can make up you know I, I look at whether it's you know a presidential candidate, whether it's uh, whatever. you know I, I, I don't necessarily vote a straight ticket. I vote the way based upon individual issues and uh, lots of other dynamic decisions in these processes. And I and the funny part is is that everybody gets mad at me because I always do kind of you know drift based upon prevailing evidence. And when we lock into these ideological camps, is when we're toast, that we really need to understand what other people are thinking, how they're feeling, and why they in their hearts feel that there's a problem before we can begin to address their problem.
3: Oh, yeah. And like just not having uh, not having such a, a visceral reaction to evidence that is contrary to the thing that you believe, you know, sure. I mean, I'd, I'd make a shirt that says proud to be a waffler, you know, <laughs> like I'm I'm happy to switch views on things because I mean, it, at least it shows that you're actively thinking about something. Right.
2: Oh, exactly. I mean, going into any conversation saying I could be wrong. And the thing that makes me madder than anything is when somebody says we have to agree to disagree. Because I think, well, okay, let's not let's agree to agree.
3: Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> Either you're wrong or I'm wrong, and can't we go out of this conversation holding hands? Go get a beer, um, have a pizza, and celebrate that one of us came to the table and changed their mind. I like that, and I think that that's what more of us need to be focusing on is how do we understand these other perspectives? Don't wall them off, and that's where sometimes the artistic side of this like what you're doing can be extremely powerful because when people can see how you've captured uganda how you've captured uh, a citrus devastation here in the state of florida and then the people who are trying to solve the problem and the honesty that's there and, and the sense of commitment i think that's the kind of thing that at least influences the people that don't know which way to think
3: And I mean, I think, you know, if, if artists, uh, if artists can be artistic as well as accurate, then I think that artists can have a place in relating, you know, some of the excellent things that people like you do, uh, in the world. Uh, but it has to come from a place of accuracy. And again, speaking just on behalf of, of media, you know, um, you know, just oversimplifying is, is something that we tend to do. And if we can get over that, and if the public can kind of accept, you know, dense information uh, and watch the things that are dense and learn from them, then I, I think we have a shot at changing some minds.
2: Well, well, where else can people learn more other than, so the the, the,
3: the website is called what again? NoGMOTheMovie.com. K- uh, K-N-O-W-G-M-O-TheMovie.com.
2: And then what about on Facebook or Twitter
3: or things like that? And there you go. So we, uh, you should be able to find us on Facebook as well. Uh, you should find us on Twitter. Find us on Pinterest. Find us on Instagram. We are uh, social media savvy <laughs> on our end. So, yeah, find us anywhere. And, uh, you know, if you can't donate, uh, that's fine by us. What you can do is share our work, share some of the webisodes that we're releasing with People in your life who, you know, uh, maybe don't share a similar point of view, right? Like if you're listening to the Talking Biotech podcast with Kevin Fulta, I can probably honestly say that I'm not making this movie for you. Uh, I'm trying to change the minds of people who, uh, who aren't inclined to listen to a biotech podcast. So if you know of those people in your life, that's the people who need to see the work that we're doing. Uh, so please, uh, please facilitate that for us. That would be very helpful.
2: Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. I, you know, I really appreciate it. I can't wait to see you and, and Tony again pretty soon, your dad and everybody else. So you know, thank you very much for spending the time with us today on the Talking Biotech podcast.
3: I appreciate it, Kevin Poulter. Thank you very much. And uh, we will talk to you soon, buddy. Okay.
0: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com.
2: Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with
0: science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time Sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.